You can turn your Bible to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 16 to 20. And as you're turning there, um, we'll start by telling you about a person. <clears throat> this person was born in 570 AD. He was an orphan, probably sick a lot of his childhood. Wasn't very educated. Uh, some have said he was even illiterate. Grew up and when he could, tried to teach himself some of these things to read and to write and such. At age 25, he married. In the span of his years growing up to adulthood, he did encounter some Christians and some Jews that taught him about the existence of God. And understanding this reality was so impactful to him, he began to tell others. It was... Not clear at first whether he was a Christian or something different, but he began teaching and preaching. At first, no one really was responding to his message. His family listened to him. His teachings consisted of five big ideas. First, there's one God. Second, we must pray to him multiple times a day. Third, we all have to engage in acts of charity. Fourth, we must fast one month out of the year. And lastly, if you really wanted to follow God, you have to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. You all know who I'm talking about now, don't you? I'm talking about Muhammad. In this time of his life, at first no one was listening to him. Only his family he gathered around him and only they would listen to him. But Years later, when he was 52 years old, he was actually so opposed, he fled out of his hometown, he left, and he went to a city called Medina, and there, while he was there, in seven years, he amassed a huge following, thousands of followers. And so when he returned to Mecca, he brought with him about 10,000 of his followers, it was an army, and he used that army to overtake the city. And on that day, historians say, Islam was born. That was in 622. In about 80 years, so some, by some estimates, a couple generations later, Islam is overrunning the entire Roman Empire. It's spreading like wildfire. It's spreading, starting there in the Middle East, but it's spreading all around the world. And you look at that and you go, well, how are they doing it? How are they spreading so quickly? And uh, you know historically that the way that they spread their religion so quickly was by force, right? You read the history books, this is kind of what happened. They would go into uh, pagan nations and they would say, you must subdue your life under the authority of Allah or, what's the alternative? You die. We kill you. Those who believed in some god usually were given a different alternative. They wouldn't necessarily kill them, but they did, need, they did oppress them in various ways. And it is by that way, by that force, that Islam spread throughout the world. It spread throughout the world. Now, Christianity was spreading as well during this time. But I want to bring up how Islam spread to highlight a reality. How is Christianity spread? Now, there have been times throughout history when the Christians got caught up in doing things they shouldn't have been doing, and you call them the Crusades, uh, things like that, where it was uh, fought more on a political level and a government level than a heart level. However, how has true, authentic, Christ-centered, Christ-following Christianity spread? I mean, both of these religions, if you just go on Google, you search, what's the biggest religion in the world? Or what are the top religions in the world? And by sheer number, without going to all the specifics of categories, you got Christianity and Islam right there at the top. And these religions are all over the world, all over the planet. I, we're just talking about the Philippines. On the other side of the globe, you have both of these uh, belief systems present. Anywhere you go, even here. You'll find people, obviously Christians, we're a gathering of them, but you'll also find Muslims who are adherents of this other religion. I want to ask the question, if both of these have spread everywhere, how did Christianity spread? And I'm talking the true, 
real biblical Christianity, not the kind of surface cultural Christianity that, that has happened in various times and places. I'm talking real heart level, uh, genuine conversion, biblical Christianity. How has that got around the globe? I and mean, we want to know that, right? Well, what's at the heart of that? How does this spread? In fact, this is very critical to us because you know what? We're still on a mission of spreading Christianity. Not just as an external religion, but Christ and truth. We're, we're, the mission's not over. We're not done spreading it. And so I want to know, how has it spread? I want to know, how did it spread? I want to know what I can learn about that so I can understand what are we supposed to be doing here to make sure that it continues to spread. And so we're going to look at, in the book of Mark, a central piece of how the church began and what it's supposed to be doing and really the beginning. If It's like the first domino, you might say. It's like the first domino that gets knocked over and it begins this whole uh, domino after domino falling and spreading throughout all the world. How did it all begin? And of course, it begins with Jesus. And I want to read to you... Uh, Chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. And in this section, we're going to encounter a theme that is so critical, so central, we either embrace what Jesus is telling us to do, or we fade into irrelevance. This is a thing that we're going to encounter here in these verses that we either embrace and live or neglect and die. Success or failure is going to be contingent upon what we do with these verses. And in specifically, what Jesus has called His followers to do and to be. This is foundational. This is critical. We lose this, we lose the church. We lose this conviction We're gone in a generation. Let's read it. Verses 16 to 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, that's Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about who these people were, what they were doing, what their jobs were, and what became of them next week. I want to actually zero into the middle, right to the center of this passage. I want to look at the words of Christ, what is he doing? What is he saying? What is he teaching? What is he requiring of his first disciples? What does it mean for them to follow him? What kind of lifestyle should they embrace if they, in fact, are going to be disciples of Jesus? Now, I want to just create a little context here. If you look back in the previous verses, verses 14 to 15, it's actually crucial that we read these things together. Jesus comes onto the scene. Remember, Jesus is God incarnate. He's coming to give a message to all humanity. You remember this? And Jesus' message to all humanity is essentially, time's up, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and then he has this message, this imperative, this command. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. And we identified repentance as that understanding that you are not Lord anymore. There's a king that's coming outside of you. He is the one who rules and reigns. He is the one who is going to bring justice to the world. And if you recognize that you are unrighteous, unjust, a sinner, which is what everybody is, and if you recognize there's a king coming who will establish righteousness, you got to understand that this is really bad news at first. Because if I'm a sinner, I'm not going to be allowed into the kingdom when the king comes. And so what does Jesus allow? What does he call for? He says, hey, the the kingdom's coming. Repent. This is the way into salvation. This is how you receive Christ. It's like letting go of something. Letting go of your self-righteousness. Letting that fall to the ground. Letting go of your way of living. Letting go of your apparent wisdom that you think you have. Letting go of this and turning your hand to grab hold of Jesus. That's the embrace of Christ. That's the belief in the gospel. Repent. 
And so he's calling us to himself. He's calling humanity to himself. The good news of this, though it might feel like bad news, what, a king's coming? He's, he's righteous and I'm a sinner? The good news is that Jesus, as the Bible will go on to explain, that Jesus not only calls people to himself, he also invites people to salvation. And this repentance that he is offering to people, this gospel he's telling people to believe in, when repentance happens, when belief happens, God saves sinners. So those who come to Jesus are not trying to come in their own strength and to come to try to impress him. They come empty-handed and Jesus provides for them a perfect righteousness that they could never have on their own. And so this is salvation. It's not you trying to earn something for God. And I need to make sure you hear this. You've got to really hear this. Because I'm going to talk about some of the things we do after we're Christians, once we become disciples of Christ. And I don't want any of you, listen, I don't want any of you to think that some of the things we do are trying to earn salvation, trying to make Jesus love us a little bit more. It's not what we're going to talk about. We start by saying, I can't save myself. Jesus is a coming king. I am a sinner. I deserve to be kicked out of this kingdom for my criminal sin, and yet he is extending a hand of mercy and grace, and he tells me if I just turn to him, I will be saved and forgiven. And now, as an expression of my repentance, I follow him. Okay, this text, you got to see, it comes after repentance. It comes after an explanation of repentance. Some of us, When we think of repentance, we think of it in negative terms, in the sense of this. We think of repentance as stop sinning. You guys need to stop sinning. Repentance is stopping your sins. And so we think of it, again, to use the hand analogy, we think of repentance as you're grabbing onto your sin, and to repent just means to to let it go, drop it. And I will say that's part of repentance. But that's not all repentance is. As John the Baptist taught, we see in in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 3, he says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Which means that the life of repentance is not merely to stop sinning, but to now embrace a life of obedient fruitfulness to King Jesus. You follow? It is not to just stop the sins that you have committed. It is not just to remove sins from your life. It is to replace those sins with now righteous following, righteous obedience to Jesus. Imperfect, yes. A flawed obedience, yes. But now still we're turning to Christ in obedience. Now we are explain, we're seeing here that we are called to repent and then as an expression of repentance, watch this, Jesus comes and says to these disciples who will follow them, or to who, who will, he'll call, he says, now, follow me. Do you hear this? Part of the way you repent is not just by stopping the sins of your former life, but now by embracing Christ. His call on your life, His mission that He has for you, is it a positive, it is a positive embrace of Jesus his priorities, his word, his agenda for your life. So so it's not just trying to clean things up. It is a full-hearted embrace of a new agenda for your life. That's repentance. That's repentance. What we're going to see here is three features of gospel-advancing discipleship. Three features. We're going to see it in the simple call that Jesus gives to these disciples Three features of gospel advancing discipleship. I just want to say this. This is foundational. Let me repeat. If we don't do this, we're irrelevant in a generation. If we don't do this, our grandkids don't get to hear the gospel here. I don't know what this place becomes, but it's not a church. If we don't, by conviction, embrace these things that Jesus lays out for us for all the disciples that he calls to himself, if we don't, by conviction, make them our own, we begin to die. I mean, that's the first smell of death in the air. It is a church that has forgotten. It is a group of Christians that have forgotten what Jesus demands of all his 
disciples. We forget this basic reality of what it means to follow Jesus and we embrace a sort of churchianity. I'm telling you, that's the first step down the path toward death. A church must understand and individuals who comprise the church must understand what it means to follow Jesus. And so we got to look at the, the features of gospel advancing discipleship. We're going to see three of them. I want to first draw your attention to the first words Jesus says there in that, that verse 17. Jesus said to them, let's look at the first two, follow me. He first says, follow me. This was a little bit not normal for a, a rabbi in Jewish culture in this time. Normally, the students would choose their own rabbis. And you would know a good rabbi by the number of students that they had. If you had a bunch of students following you around, you must be a pretty effective rabbi because all the students wanted to follow you. Jesus, and all through Mark, you're going to see this, Jesus just breaks protocol. You know, he breaks the, 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 the rules of the society and he does things his own way. Of course, he's infinitely wise and so he's doing what the right way would be. He goes after a few men. We have four in this passage and he picks them. He goes after them. And it says that in this text, these people heard him and they immediately followed him. Now, we know from the other Gospels that this probably wasn't the first time they encountered Jesus. They'd heard about him. And John even describes that they had seen some amazing things that Jesus had done. But this was the first time that Jesus said, now follow me. He uses those two words, I want you to follow me. And it says that they immediately followed him. They left their nets and they began to actually follow him around. Now you might ask yourself, well, why did Jesus do this? Why would Jesus say, follow me? And you would know the answer, but let's just state the obvious. Why are these people following Jesus around? Well, the answer is that in following Jesus, you learn from him, right? In following Jesus, you begin to learn who he is, what he believes, how he treats people. You're watching his life. You're listening to his teachings. You would actually follow him around. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus said this. Listen to this. It's a graphic picture. It's a good one to, to take in your mind when you think about what it actually means to follow Jesus. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You're a farmer. You know what a yoke is? You need oxen that need to plow a field. You get these two giant beasts and to make them go in the way that you want and to make sure they're all sticking together, you would get this big yoke made of wood and metal and this big device would hang over the necks of these two giant animals and it'd lock them together. Now these two things, one's not going this way and the other's going this way. Now the beasts are going side by side and they could plow a field. The strength of the two of them together was able to accomplish much, and so they would lock them together, make sure they couldn't leave. And Jesus is saying, to put an image in your mind, he's saying, I have a yoke too, okay? I got a yoke on me, and what I want you to do, if you want to be my disciple and you want to learn from me, take that yoke and put yourself in the second slot, okay? Put yourself right here, wrap it around your neck, tie yourself up, and here's what you're going to do. You're now walking with me where I walk. You're going where I go. You're listening to what I teach. You're watching how I live. This is what it meant to be a disciple and to follow Jesus. They would move together. They would talk together. And they would learn from Jesus as he lived his life. Now, listen. This would be a kind of learning that's more than just book learning, right? If you're walking around with someone day in, day out, you actually get to know them much better than if you just stand in a class and listen to them lecture. These disciples would watch him live. They would get to see him interact with just about any person that comes their way. He, they're, they're watching them. And this, is it not a powerful way of teaching? It's a, this is a powerful way to teach. Uh, so think about this. Your parents... Your parents are so influential on your life, even if you can't remember a single thing they taught you. Even if you don't remember a single lecture that they give you. Now, I have yet to have this experience where after I sit down with one of my kids and I look them in the eye and have a nice formal moment of correction and instruction that they look back at me and go, Daddy, thank you for that sermon. That was great. Can, I, can you do that again and I'll take some notes this time? I'll jot it down. I'll remember it. In fact, can we do this again tomorrow night? Uh, no. I'm not saying that those things aren't important. 
Certainly we instruct and we teach and Jesus did the same thing. But how was the learning to be taking place? Yes, Jesus sometimes, he just taught, he just preached Sermon on the Mount. But he lived. And the reason your parents have made such an impact on you is you learn to live from their living. You learn to talk from their talking. You learn to love from their loving. You learn to prioritize by watching what they prioritized. In other words, some people have said it this way, more is caught than taught. And so someone might lecture, but if they live a life that undermines the content of their lectures, you don't learn much from them. Uh, You learn from someone who lives the life worth following and then explains the foundations of that life. You learn by listening, but you learn by watching. And this is what it meant for these disciples to follow Jesus. Yes, they would learn from the lectures, from the sermons, from the teachings, but they would watch him live. Here's, let's, let's bridge the gap a little bit. Okay, How now do we, today's world, follow Jesus? They left their nets and followed him. There's a geographical aspect. They literally followed him around. Uh, Do you do that? I mean, we can't follow Jesus. He's ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father. We don't follow him around like that. Well, how do we do it today? Here's the first feature of gospel advancing discipleship. Feature number one, embrace a life of learning Jesus. Embrace a life of learning Jesus. This is where discipleship begins. This is where effectiveness in the church begins. This is where fruitfulness in the church begins. Embrace a life, a style of life, a style of living that learns Jesus Christ. I want you to notice what I didn't say. I didn't say learning about Jesus. You see a difference there? I didn't say learn about Jesus. I'm borrowing Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20, when he's confronting these Christians who are starting to act more like unbelievers. They're starting to act more like pagans. And he tells them this. He says, that is not the way you learned Christ. He doesn't say, that's not the way you learned about Christ. There's a little bit of a difference there. You see the difference? He's talking about learning Christ. Not about learning facts, learning data, learning information. The, the, the facts are important, the data is important, yes. But he's talking about something broader and more expansive, learning Christ. If you want to be a faithful disciple, if we want our church to be fruitful, it starts with each one of us having a conviction that I need to learn this Savior. I need to know Him. Not just know about Him. Not just get the facts right, check the boxes right. I need to learn Christ. I mean, you could think of it this way. There's a a significant difference between those things. If we're going to France, and we need someone who has learned French, and I say, hey, go find someone who's learned French so we can can get our way around here. We can communicate a little bit. We get a translator. And you go and you find someone who knows about French. Is that going to help much? They say, how, here's the language. Um, I learned that this language came into the existence. And this year, the, the language is a romance language, and people speak it in all places in the world. And I say, okay, that's great. Can I speak French now? No. You've got to help me translate. You've got to know the language enough to be able to communicate. This is the idea of learning Christ that Paul's describing in Ephesians 4. Learning Christ is not just an accumulation of facts. It is intimate knowledge. Knowledge that translates, listen, into usefulness. I fear some of us who prize theology don't use that theology in their daily lives. What a travesty if we don't take the truths, these glorious truths, and filter them through our minds and hearts so that they come out in the way we live. We need to all, each one of us, embrace a lifestyle of learning Christ. You say, okay, how do I do that? I can't follow him around. I don't, I don't get to, to talk to him you know, face-to-face and see you know him. I don't get to see him in these ways. How do you do it? I mean, we're, we're not talking about the kind of clinical learning that a scientist might, you know, in a textbook or in a laboratory learn information. We're talking uh, more like a relational learning, like a married couple after 50 years being married together, how, how they learn each other. You see the difference? 
Do you know Christ in that way? How do you learn Christ in that way? Grow in intimacy with Christ. Grow in knowledge, depth of knowledge and nearness and communion with Jesus. To use that a marriage analogy, how, how, do we, how do we do this? Imagine this. Imagine a husband and wife are separated for a year and that husband writes letters to his wife. In every letter, he tells what's happening in his life and what's happening in his heart, what he's doing, what he's thinking, what he's feeling. And he sends that letter to the wife. And the wife, whenever she opens up that letter, she reads it very carefully. She doesn't read it like an instruction manual. She reads it as if it's coming from someone who loves her. And so she reads it with the intent of being near to her husband. Though they are far in the letter, in the note, in the writing, she can embrace that and feel near to him, feel like she knows him, because it's a very personal thing. Do you understand that God has given us His revelation, His Word, and the Scriptures are God's gift to us that we might know Him. We can maybe study the Scriptures in a very clinical, technical way. And there's a time and place for that. But do we also see that this is a personal God who's revealing who He is to us that we might know Him, love Him, cherish Him, and have a relationship with Him, walk with Him. That this is very personal. Do you read God's very personal, right now relevant Word to you? You study it? This is part of the way we today follow Jesus. Is that we get to know Him in this way. We long for Him. We want to hear from Him. And this is like a letter sent from heaven and we can read over it and say, this is from my loving Lord. It's helping me know who He is. It tells me what He's like. It tells me how to follow Him. It tells me how to be near to Him. It tells me how to think like Him, to be on the same page as Him. Are you devoted to it? I also want to say, though, I think it's more than just learning the Scriptures and being devoted to them. That's obviously a critical part of our following of Jesus. If we are to embrace a lifestyle of learning Jesus, that is absolutely central. But I want to propose that there's also something else that we got to do if we truly want to follow Jesus. And that is this. I want you to think about this. Christ puts you in a church. You... In Christ, you are in Christ by faith. You know that? The moment you believed, the Bible describes you as being in Christ. The Bible, you know what it also says about you, Christian? It says that Christ is in you. Galatians 2.20 says you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. That the life of Christ, the mind of Christ is yours. The words of Christ are yours. You have the Holy Spirit that enables you to give the character of Christ, to show the character of Christ in your life. You understand when you come to church, all of us to differing degrees are expressing the life of Christ, the character of Christ, the mind of Christ, the truth of Christ. Let me tell you this, this is often so forgotten in our American individualistic culture. We so frequently forget this reality that Jesus put you in a church and the church is meant to be a, way, a place where you learn Christ by watching the lives of other Christ followers. You know that? This is thoroughly biblical. Philippians 3.17 Brothers, Paul says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Do you see what he just said? In other words, following Jesus isn't just book stuff. It starts there because that's where we get the truth from God's Word, but it's beyond that. It's all the people who have taken the knowledge of God from the Word of God and they're living lives to follow Jesus. And as I look around and I see you following Jesus, I am commanded in Philippians to keep my eyes on you. Why? So I can learn from you. All of us. Isn't that amazing? You're here to help others follow Jesus. Not just by teaching them something, by giving them a lecture, although that comes and that's an opportunity sometimes, but you're here in the way you talk, 
the way you shake hands, the way you embrace, the way you love, to show what Jesus is like. The way we follow Jesus in part is by following the examples of other Jesus followers. Just to reinforce this, Hebrews 13.7 says the same thing. He says, remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you, there's that verbal proclamation, there's that kind of sermon type. Those who spoke to you the Word of God, but listen to this, consider the outcome of their way of life. Watch them live. Watch what their lifestyle results in. And imitate their faith. Yeah, learn their doctrine, but yeah, learn their devotion. Watch their life. If you want to follow Jesus today, yes, learn the book. Be in the book. Study the book. Take all these things into your mind, into your heart. But listen, do not neglect the church. God put you in a church. So that in looking around, you can see others following Jesus and you can go, I never knew what it meant to act that way or to live in this truth. And by seeing you live, it now makes sense. It's like putting flesh on the bones. Like, oh, I remember we went to St. Louis in uh, 2013 with a group of us to help a little church get planted. It had already been started. The pastor was a great man of God. And he loved the Lord and he was faithful. He was a zealous man. And he was one of those men that just by being around him, you could catch the zeal of his love for the Lord. And we brought a little team out there just to do whatever we could to help them in their church plant. And one particular young man on the team had grown up in a non-believing home. He'd never seen a Christian home. He didn't have Christian parents. He didn't know what it was like. He was somewhat even new to the church. And he was just like eating it all up and learning all he could and reading his Bible and, and really trying to figure out what it looked like for him to be a man of God. Well, we ended up staying in the house of that pastor. And we stayed downstairs. And uh, it was in St. Louis. So they had a basement. And we were in the basement. And uh, every morning... Around 4.30 a.m., we'd hear the creaking of the floor over us. And that man would be up, and we would know that the coffee's brewing, the Bible's being opened, and he would be in the Word studying before any of us were up. He'd be studying the, the truths of Scripture so it could be in him. He'd be spending time in prayer. By the time the rest of us got up and we'd spend time around the breakfast table with he and his family, and he would be leading his family in devotions. And his family would eat it up. They would, they would sit around, and, and these were kids. I mean, it wasn't like it was all fine and dandy. At times it was a zoo. But this man was absolutely persistent and kind and loving. The way he led his kids was exemplary. The way he modeled it for his wife was exemplary. And I remember at the end of this trip, we had done so many things. We had preached the gospel on street corners. We had gone door to door. We had talked to people at parks. We had done all kinds of things. And we got together as a group after the whole trip was over. And we went around the table and we just asked that question. What was most impactful for you? What was the thing that you're taking away from this? And that young man who had never seen a Christian live in the home, uh, never seen a Christian father, never seen a Christian husband, he said, you know what it was? It was just watching the pastor be a husband. It was watching him lead his family. I'd never seen anything like that. I didn't know what, I didn't have a category for a man leading his family in worship. I didn't have a category for that. I didn't know what it meant to lead a home. You see, we're not only meant to learn by just book knowledge. As far as that goes, that is great, but God has also designed that people take the truths of the book and they invest it in their lives and they live it out before people. And then, listen, we invite people into our lives and they watch us live as we follow Christ. Yes, imperfectly. Yes, we stumble forward together, but we learn from watching each other in the struggle. See, listen, we are a community of Christ learners. We are here to learn Christ. And yes, that means we learn from Scripture, we learn from sermons, we learn from lectures, we learn from all those things. We must, that is biblical, and, and we also learn by watching the lives of the people around us. So let me ask you, who are you learning from? This is part of our following of Jesus. Who are you watching 
that is a good example of enfleshed theology? Young men, study your Bible. Study it hard. But do you have an older man that has walked with the Lord for many years? That's maybe loved a wife and raised some kids that you can say, I need to learn from you. Because you can help me follow Jesus. And young women, yes, study the Word. Yes, read good books. Get yourself in the Bible study. But open your life up to the other women in the room who are also following Jesus and say, I don't have it figured out. Can I learn from you how to follow Jesus in the home, in your singleness, as a mother, as a wife? You need both. By the way, this is why we do church membership the way we do. We say that everyone has a commitment here. Everyone is involved here. Everyone has to help each other follow Jesus. I need you. You need me. We need each other because we're not just here to learn bare facts about Jesus. We want to learn Christ. We want to learn who He is. And we want good examples to show us what that looks like. So how do we follow Him now? Yes, we study, but we watch the lives of good examples all around us. But let's look at that second phrase now. Or sorry, that last phrase. He says, follow me and I will make you. And I want to look at this next phrase, become fishers of men. He says, I want you to follow me. And what I'm going to do with you is I'm going to reorient your whole life. You guys understand the four men that he's calling to himself are fishermen. Okay? It was their occupation, it's their livelihood, that's what they know, it's what they understand. It's as if Jesus comes up to these men, he says, all right, you spend your life catching fish. Okay, that's what you've done. What I'm going to do with you when you follow me is I'm going to reorient your whole world. Because now, instead of catching fish, I'm going to have you catch men. I'm going to have you fish for people. I'm going to have you go after souls. You, you spent your life on the boat, that's great. But now you're out of the boat and now you're fishing in a different way. You're still fishing. It's just you got a different thing to catch now. You're going after people. You're going after souls. I'm reorienting your life so that you will help with the spread of the gospel, with bringing people under the lordship of Christ and teaching them to follow Jesus. Listen, hear this, know this, be convinced of this. Jesus is doing the same with you today. Embrace this reality. That when Jesus says to you, follow me, he is also saying, I'm going to change your life. And I'm going to reorient your life. And I'm going to make you all about my agenda now. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. It would be like Jesus going into a group of doctors and Jesus says, all right, you work to cure the body. I'm going to uh, turn your life around to make you work to cure the sick. I mean, you take your job, whatever your role is, whatever you do, and Jesus comes into your life and says, sure, you can keep doing that, but now the purpose has changed. You're on my agenda now. My agenda is that everything you're doing is for me, it's for my glory. You now have a new agenda, and that new agenda is to give your life away to help people follow me. That is the heart of what it means to be a disciple. Listen, hear this. This is not an optional add-on. You can get the bonus package. Comes with discipleship too. This is not that. This is anyone who would come after him will be reoriented in their life to be now a fisher for men, a curer for souls. Instead of building buildings, some of you are going to build into lives. This is now the reorientation of your life. Jesus says he's going to do it. I'm going to make you become fishers of men. So here's the second feature of gospel advancing discipleship that we must by conviction embrace. It's this, embrace the life of helping others follow Jesus. Is that simple enough? It's really simple in the text. Here's what you do. You follow me. And when you do that, you undergo a transformative experience where now Jesus turns you around and enables you and empowers you to help others follow Him. Hear me. This is not for the preachers. This is not for church leaders only. This is not for the people who are the super Christians. Listen, every Christian. Everyone. All of us. The very gifted and the least gifted. 
Every single one of us has the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every single one of us has the call of Christ on our lives. Every single one of us, as followers of Jesus, we are under this transformative process where He's now changing our lives so that we now are embracing the life of helping others follow Jesus. Who are you helping follow Jesus? Really think about that. Who is being helped to follow Jesus by your life? If in honesty you answer that question by saying, no one. I'm not helping anyone follow Jesus. I would ask you, in what sense are you following him then? If the very first thing he says that he does with his followers is he turns them into fishers for men. The very essence of saying, I am following you, is to say, I'm embracing all that you are for me. I'm embracing your agenda for my life. And I am going to do what you tell me to do. And if you say that you're going to transform me to become a fisher for men, well, that's what I'm going to be. And if I'm the weakest person in the room, that don't matter. Because I'm still under this call. I'm still called to be a Christian. So you might say, well, I'm afraid. I'm busy. I'm this, I'm that. And at the end of the day, we all say, it doesn't matter, right? We all can say, I have been called to this. Jesus is inviting me into this. And so, what do we say, church? I'm all in. And I hope you have this conviction. You say, I'm all in. I'm all in for Christ. And if I'm going to go all in for Christ, what does that mean? His agenda is now my agenda. And so I will live to help others follow Jesus I might not have much in my wallet, but whatever I got, I'm spending for him. Some of us have different capacities, and we can do a lot, and we can do it a certain way with high energy, and praise the Lord if that's you, take what you got in your wallet and spend that, and some of you, you look at your wallet and you go like, I got hardly anything in here. I have a low capacity. I have low energy. I feel like I don't know much. Well, you know what? Take what's in your wallet and spend it for Christ. It's all his anyway. Use who you are, the opportunities he gives to advance his gospel and build in disciples. There's a man, I don't know if you've heard of him, named Dawson Trotman. He was the founder of the Navigators uh, that started around the time of World War II. He was a Christian who really began living out his Christian ministry on a Navy ship. And he began his ministry, this is really the story of how the Navigators began, uh, by discipling a young man named Les Spencer. This is what they do. He'd get together with Les Spencer and they'd read scripture together, they'd pray together, they'd try to memorize scripture together, and then they'd talk about life and then that was it. But they did it consistently. They kept doing it. Finally, at the end of some time together, Les Spencer had been so transformed that his friends were going, what happened to you? You were a different man when you came on the ship. How are you so different now? And Spencer, this young man, was thinking, wow, yeah, I have been changed. So he went back to Dawson Trotman. He said, hey, you got to do what you did with me with these other guys. And you know what he said? He said, you do it. You do it. He was a little bit nervous. He said, me? But, but, but you're the one who taught me. I don't know any of this stuff. You're the one that's teaching me. He said, no, I'm not doing it for you. You do it. This young man, Les Spencer, he started doing it. Very simple. Let's just read the Bible. Let's pray together. Let's try to memorize Scripture together. And they did it. He started doing it too. You know what happened? In a matter of a few years, 125 men on that ship were investing in each other's lives. They were calling themselves now disciples of Jesus. People were getting saved. It was like a little revival broke out on the ship. And by the end of World War II, this, by this simple process of just trying to help each other follow Jesus. There were thousands of men on ships all over the world that were helping each other follow Jesus. Dawson Trotman wrote a book later in his life called Born to Reproduce. His contention in that book is that every Christian is born to reproduce. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how gifted you are. You are born in the Spirit, by the power of the Gospel, to reproduce your faith and your obedience in the lives of other people. And so to say, I'm following Jesus. You know what you're also saying? Part of my following of Jesus is helping others follow Jesus. So on this hand, I'm grabbing Christ. 
I'm holding on with everything I've got. I'm going to learn him. I'm going to study him. I'm going to study the lives of the people who are following him. And with this hand, I'm grabbing someone else or some others. Maybe more than one. I'm saying, I'm going to do all I can. I might be the weakest person in the room, the least gifted person in the room, but I got the infinite power of the Spirit of God that indwells me. And so I'm going to grab some other people and I'm just going to do my best to help them follow Jesus. I don't know much about what I need to know yet, but I'm going to dive in and maybe we'll learn together. But I'm grabbing some people and we're going to learn Christ together. That is part of the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. So are you following him? Are you following him? It's so easy for us to say we're following Jesus because we prayed some prayer someday, but an expression of repentance. Remember, this is an expression of our new life following Jesus is we say, I'm all in for you, Christ. I'm all in. Going all in does not save you at all, but when you understand your great salvation, you say, I have to go all in. Uh, There's no other thing worth living for. Why would I do anything else with my life? Christ is that glorious. He's that great. And I have experienced his greatness. And I want others to know it. And so I'm going to help others follow him as well. You say, what, what do I do? I'm going to give you three words that maybe will give you some grip, some, something to do, some steps to take, or some things to think about. First, think about this word, intentionality. Some of us, you start thinking about helping others follow Jesus. You get so scared. You're shaking in your boots. You think you've got to start walking door to door or shouting with a, on the side of a road and you know, yelling at people as they walk by. And you're going, I'm never going to do that. But okay, Jesus, I've got to do it. I'll start making cold calls or I'll get my sandwich board sign and I'll stand on the street corner. And I'm not saying any of those things. I am saying this. You know what? God has already put a mission field around you. You know that? He's already placed you sovereignly and strategically in a certain place. And I bet if you opened your eyes and you were a little bit strategic, you'd realize there are people at work with you, sitting next to you, eating lunch with you. They're outside on Saturdays cutting their lawn. They're washing their car next to you. They're all around you. And if we just had some eyes to see and some intentionality, we'd probably recognize that they're there. Listen, you can't reach everyone in the world. You can't. You can't even reach everyone in Rancho Cucamonga. None of us can. Even if you got a loudspeaker and you were given some loudspeaker and you could talk to the whole world, you know who would believe your message? Everyone would ignore you except the people who have actually seen your life. Because the people who would see your life would go, yeah, that's what it is. I see that integrity. I see that honesty. I see that humility. I see that generosity. There must be something about this person's life. What is it? And then you speak into their life and you say, I got someone for you to meet. His name is Jesus. Here's the best news that has changed my life. And the reason I am the way I am is because of him. Start with intentionality. Who are the people around your life that are already there? Write a few names down. Second, let me offer you this word, hospitality. What if you wrote a few names down and you said, I'm going to move toward these people with radical hospitality. You know, we live in a generation where it's going to be harder and harder to get people to show up to church And we're increasingly secular. Christianity will be increasingly marginalized. I guarantee you that's kind of the trend of the direction of this nation. And I think increasingly, you know where the front lines, you know where the front lines of gospel advance will be? The dinner table in your home. As you invite people that you love, that you've cared for around the table, and you actually really love them. They're not just a project for you. You're really just loving them. And out of the overflow of your life, you tell them about the greatness of Jesus Christ. Romans 15.7 tells us that the way we welcome people can reflect something of the greatness of the gospel. Do you know that? That your hospitality says something about Jesus' hospitality to sinners? So be hospitable. Some of you, God has given you a home to own. You know That everything in your life is Christ's, even that home, that dinner table, and some of you don't like to hear this, even that food in the fridge, has been given to us to share with others. Just be hospitable. And this is our third word leading into this generosity, intentionality, hospitality, generosity. What if we were radically generous? I'm not saying handouts, just throwing money at people for no reason. I'm saying, what if we were generous with our time? What if we were generous with our resources? What if we were generous with our energy to serve our neighbors 
so that the gospel had some flesh and bones on it and it wasn't mere abstract propositional statements. That they could see something of the reality playing out in our lives. What if we all did that? I remember in seminary learning a valuable lesson when the teacher asked a question to the whole class and the question he asked was this, how many of you came to Christ because of the love that some Christian or some church showed you? Hands shoot up all around the room. The first guy goes, I I was a high school student, I was invited to a summer camp, didn't know the gospel. The students there came around me. They loved me, they invited me in to their friend group, they treated me like one of their peers, they genuinely loved me. I felt so cared for by the leaders. By the end of the night, when I heard about their gospel, I said, I want whatever they have. A person repented and gave their life to Christ at that moment. Another person is with his hand up said, yeah, I was from Africa, moved to America. I was invited to a church, had never been to one, showed up on the first Sunday, it was around Thanksgiving time. Some old lady in the congregation walked up to me and asked if I had a place to go for Thanksgiving. I told him I didn't, I didn't have anywhere to go. And so that old lady invited that foreigner to her home to sit at the table. And on Thanksgiving Day, he showed up and he had never experienced such hospitality. He thought to himself, I don't know what it is about these people. I want what they have. He got saved. He gave his life to Christ. He's now serving the Lord in Africa. Another person with their hand up was called upon. This person was an atheist when he decided to show up to church. He showed up to church just because he thought it was fun to see a bunch of people, and one is just a little bit curious. So he showed up to church, and he began by thinking, I, I got nothing, I got everything they have. There's nothing that they have that I don't. At least that's how he began. Within a few months of him showing up to church, he began to realize they love differently than I love. They love differently. There's a sacrificial, I need nothing in return kind of love that they demonstrate. And he began to be convicted that he didn't have what they had. And he, before God finally cried out, I am lost, I can't love like they do, he repented and he gave his life for Christ. Listen, if all of us were intentional and hospitable and generous with the people God has already put around us, I wonder what he might do here. We tend to think of having uh, ministry to unbelievers as so frightening, so crazy. We got to shout from the rooftops. And I tell you, it's probably more like just getting to know people, showing them love, and telling them what Jesus did. Just to land this even home at our own church, what we're going to be doing over the next few months, what you got in your bulletin is uh, something that's a bookmark. So your readers, keep that with you, put in your book, and we're calling it three by three by three. Three people, three prayers, three practices. What if we did this? What if every single member of the church picked three people or couples of people who are already in their life, you started praying for them every day for boldness, for open doors, and for their salvation, and then you began adopting practices to know them, to serve them, and to share Christ with them. What if we all just did that? And we encouraged each other. We prayed for each other. We did it together. And there was actual evangelistic action for the glory of God taking place in our church that we didn't feel so great about having good intentions. That we actually moved in obedience to this commission to help others follow Jesus. How exciting would that be? When we share with the church the people we're praying for. And then next year, one of them gets up here in the baptismal tank and says, I want to be public in my declaration to follow Jesus. How amazing would that be? And friends, I don't want us to ever think that because we have sound doctrine, all is well. Listen, let this hit you in the heart. You, individually Christian, are responsible to do these things. You must help people follow Jesus. You must get to know and love your neighbors. You must be actively engaged in the mission God has for you. Why? Because we love them. Because Jesus has so loved us. And overflowing with the love that He has shown us, now we 
will spend and be spent for others. And so we go to their houses, we invite them into our homes, we give lavishly, we show generosity, we spend time, we empty our schedules. Why? So we can be there for the people who need Christ. Let me remind you, heaven is real and hell is real and every single person you've ever met will be in one of two of those places. There's an urgency to this. And if the church doesn't get on board with Christ's call to be His disciples, listen, we die. We fade into irrelevance. And the subtle thing is that it won't happen immediately. If we don't do this, no one will say anything. Everyone will applaud uh, you know, the things that are happening here. We'll be all excited. And yet, we must do this. And if we don't, It'll go unnoticed until 40 years from now. We'll be wondering what in the world happened because there's no one here. So he says, part of following him is that we become fishers of men. I want to end with this. Here's the third feature of gospel advancing discipleship embrace a life of continual transformation. Friends, it's okay to admit that you're not there yet. What I just described to you is a destination and we're all on a journey in that pathway. It's okay for you right now to say, I'm not the fisher of men I need to be. It's not okay to say, I'm unwilling to change. Because what has Jesus said? Look at those words right in the middle. Follow me and I will make you. You catch that? You gotta see that. Who's going to make you the fisher of men? It's Him. He does this in your life. You follow Him. He changes you. And what this means is that now we are on a path of inward transformation because we must admit we're not there yet, right? We're not there yet. And so we also say, Jesus, you got to change me. you got to make me that. you got to transform me from the inside out. And I wonder, I wonder if these four disciples had any idea what they're getting themselves into. Any idea where they're getting themselves into. They began to follow him. But you know what happened to Peter? He failed a whole bunch, but then he preached to thousands. You want to know what happened to John? He took a long time to figure things out too, and then he became a pastor and a wise leader and led the church for many years and died in old age. James, what happened to him? Well, in his desire to serve the church, he gave his life up and was one of the first martyrs of the Christian church. These men, oh, they were transformed, but it wasn't overnight. So I'm not asking you tomorrow to be this great and effective disciple maker. I am asking you to say to Jesus this morning, I need you to do this in me. And I'm going to take steps of obedience in this direction, but I can't do this in me. But you said that you would make me a fisher of men. And so I'm going to trust you. I'm going to walk in that direction. Jesus, change me. And as you do, you'll be amazed at how the Lord uses your frail efforts to build up His body and to advance His gospel. There's a baton in our hands right now. There's a baton in our hands right now. We don't get this. We fail to do this. We drop it. But we need to be the people who take it. Grasp it. Hold it with force and conviction. And we say, this is my life. All I am, all I'm doing, all my career, all my family, everything I'm investing in is ultimately for the purpose of helping people follow Jesus. That's why I live. I'm here for Him. And so think of your life and ask yourself, who is saying of me, that person is the one who helps me follow Jesus. That person is the one who introduced me to the Savior. He's the one. She's the one that showed me the way. If tonight all the lost people you've been praying for got saved, would anyone be saved? If all the people you're investing in and going after were suddenly converted how many people in your circle would be converted? I ask that just to ask you the question, who is it? Who is it? Who's your person? 
By the grace of God, we can't control the outcome. By the grace of God, let's go hard after the people God has put around us and call them to be followers of Jesus by explaining the beautiful and glorious gospel that saves. Let's pray. So Lord, we confess that we cannot do this. This must be your work. So Spirit, I ask that you would convict us of sin that holds us back. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's cowardice. Maybe it's busyness with wrong priorities. Oh Lord, we confess that we are so easily distracted from this mission. We ask that you convict us of how we can change. Lord, I pray that as an outcome of this time spent looking at these words you've spoken, that there would be many of us who talk about these things together and encourage each other in faithfulness to walk embracing the life following you, the life of continual transformation where you make us into fishers of men. May this be done for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.